Thank you, Will. Well, exciting uh, for me tonight to kind of open up the scriptures a little bit with you from Romans 6 and 7. I preached on Sunday morning on Galatians 2.20, and I said, well, this passage is in some ways uh, a snapshot, the truth of Romans 6 in a nutshell. And tonight we're, we're, we're going to do more than uh, open up a nutshell. We're going to try to shake the whole tree and see how many nuts we can rattle down uh, to the ground to help us. So Romans 6 and 7, and obviously it'll be a jet tour through Romans 6 and 7, because we've, we've only got an hour or so, they tell me. So we'll, uh, we'll try to do that. So we, we start a Sunday night uh, by talking about the, the reality that God has called the church, you as a body, to be uh, a body, an army, really, of mutually encouraging people. Like you are ministering the Word of God to one another. That's, that's God's design for the church. And so it is your each and every one of your individual callings. And of course, I, I said last night, you're all doing that anyway, either in your homes or your Sunday school classes or, or your small groups or just in your relationships as you're talking in between uh, uh, services or, or in the parking lot or wherever you gather together. You're constantly giving one another advice and encouraging one another and speaking truth into one another's lives. And I hope seeking help from one another. Uh, that's... Uh, clearly part of what God wants us to do to grow. And then uh, last night, uh, we talked, oh goodness, what did we talk about last night? You tell me. The sufficiency of Scripture. Yes, yeah, 2 Timothy 3, we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. That that is the task, or that is the tool that God has given to us to accomplish that task of encouraging one another. Tonight we're going to talk about Romans 6 and 7, which I think the truths embedded in Romans 6 and 7 are some truths that as I've engaged in this ministry of encouraging others from the Word and trying to help people overcome sin and, and think about their lives and some of their struggles, even with the kinds of, of struggles that we've talked about like anxiety and depression where it's not a blatant rebellion but sort of missing the mark of fully trusting and fully believing God in the difficult moments of life. The truths embedded in Romans 6 and 7, I think, uh, are often just neglected. Maybe the implications of them are not fully understood. And in, in one sense, as I was meditating on this passage today, I thought, you know, uh, the application of Romans 6 and 7 is, is a little more readily seen when we think about the blatant kinds of sin, like addiction and and disobedience, those kinds of things, and not as, as easily and readily seen with the missing the mark type of sins. And yet I think, I think the truths are the same. So we'll try to meander through this, and hopefully you'll see some of the implications or, uh, that I'm not able to, to have the time to draw out. One way I see this uh, misunderstanding or not failing to see the implications of Romans 6 is in a kind of defeatist attitude. That, that I see and I hear uh, Christians give voice to. Uh, and I, I've hinted at it a little bit. Someone who just says, I've, I've asked God to take this desire away. I've, I've asked God to deliver me from this temptation, and he, and he hasn't done it. And on the one hand, they feel defeated. On another, maybe they feel let down, and they get to a point almost where they're, they've almost just given up. And maybe some of you have been there in your own lives, whether in any kind of uh, situation. Um, another way that's seen is thinking, well, 
You know, Jesus told us to pray, deliver us from temptation. And God doesn't seem to be answering that prayer for me. I, I seem to be tempted over and over and over, and it's just, it gets so hard to resist. And so, again, this, this defeated attitude uh, ends up kind of sweeping people up. Another way that I, I see the implications of Romans 6 not fully understood is when I hear people talk about sin almost like it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, maybe they haven't drifted into being feeling defeated about it, but they, they talk about sin like it's a foregone conclusion. And this is how I hear it sometimes when we, we say things like, you know, I'm, I'm so sinful that even my best efforts at pleasing God are tainted by sin. And sometimes people will quote Isaiah 64, 6, a, probably a familiar passage. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. See, the, the best I can do is still filthy rags in God's sight. And if, if that's true, again, we can sort of get this uh, subtle uh, way of thinking that what's the point of trying? If I can't really please God fully, if I'm always going to be dirty in His sight anyway, then why should I try? Well, that passage, the one that I often hear, Isaiah 64, that passage isn't actually about people who are striving to please God and overcome sin. Isaiah 64 is talking about unsaved, self-righteous Israelites who are rebelliously living in sin, but continuing to offer sacrifices and so-called worship in the temple. That's what that passage is talking about. God's God's not uh, uh, telling well-meaning Christians who are fighting against sin that that's the case. He's rebuking hypocritical worship, people who aren't even trying to do battle with sin. So we need to be careful, I think, understanding it in quite that way. It's not to say there isn't indwelling sin. It's just simply to say that despite indwelling sin, by the power of the Spirit, I can please God. Right? I can discipline myself for the purpose of godliness, and, and you can too. And that's the kind of victorious attitude that I think we need to embrace. And it's the victorious attitude, I think, that Paul is trying to instill in us as believers in Romans chapter 6. I think the biblical perspective on, on why we sin and how to battle indwelling sin, when you really grasp the biblical perspective on that, like Romans 6, it's a triumphant. It's a victorious perspective. Uh, It's a glorious perspective. It's marvelous truth that is very different than the kind of passive defeatism that I often hear. So we're going to try to zoom through these passages and gird up our minds for action and gird up our minds for victory over sin and really see uh, the, the glorious nature of what God has accomplished for us in Christ and in our salvation. So here we go, diving in to the book of Romans. A little bit of context. 157 years ago in this country, the Civil War effectively ended when Robert E. Lee surrendered with his troops to Ulysses S. Grant in Virginia. And with with the end of the Civil War also came the abolishing of slavery. Abraham Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation a couple of years earlier in 1863, which legally, right, legally made every 
slave in the United States a free man. At least in legal standing, they were free. And those were great and life-changing events in our nation's history. But many of the older slaves, especially in America, that reality came as such a stark contrast to the life that they'd known for so long that many found it difficult to leave those southern plantations. And many of them, thousands of them actually, stayed on those plantations and they continued to work there and live there and live like slaves. Though, legally, they had been declared free. Now, understandably, many of those slaves even lived out their lives on a plantation where they still trembled in fear. And of course, they, they, many of them have been so grossly mistreated, it, it's not hard for us to imagine uh, in a world where trauma is talked about a lot, that people who stayed there and worked there and put themselves under uh, people who had mistreated them so grossly for so long found themselves living in fear. And the experiences of those emancipated slaves, I think, provide a, an unfortunate but realistic illustration of a very real spiritual fact. It is possible to live like a slave to your past, at least experientially, even though you are not a slave legally. You can be a slave in your feelings and in your responses when actually in respect to your status and your position, you have been completely emancipated and set free. And I, I think that's a good illustration that ought to help us understand the message of Romans 6. So let's, let's set the context for Romans 6. Because what Paul is teaching us in Romans 6 is that when it comes to sin, you were a slave, but you are now free. That's the, the, at the heart of what Romans 6 is teaching. But let's set the context of Romans 6 a, a little bit. And you could say in, in one sense that the context of Romans 6 is the gospel, right? I mean, Romans is about the gospel, certainly. Verse 16 of chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. That little phrase, the righteous man shall live by faith, is as good a summary of the gospel as there is. It it, it basically says that a man who is right with God is right with God only by faith, only by believing and trusting that God can and has made him right with himself on the merits of Christ's work his death, burial, and resurrection. The justified man receives eternal life and right standing before God and the hope of heaven only by believing and trusting in the finished work of Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. The justified man shall receive life from God only by faith. Now notice Paul says that the gospel reveals not the righteousness of man, but it reveals the righteousness of God. God. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How does it do that? Well, it does it by revealing, declaring 
that the way sinful men can be redeemed and joined to God without, is, is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And, that's the, and, and that can be done without compromising God's own justice and righteousness. Because Jesus bears the justice of God on the cross, He can make us right with a holy God and not compromise His justice when we put our faith and trust in Him. And the rest of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 3 that's just the introduction to the gospel. Chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1 and through chapter 3, Paul is proving from Scripture the universal sinfulness of man. He's, he's declaring our need for the gospel. He's declaring our need for a sacrifice for our sin. And he's declaring our inability to make ourselves right with God through our own effort and good works including obedience even to his very own law. Even that, even obedience to his law would not be enough because no man could ever keep the law of God anyway. So the only way for us to be right with him is for God himself to make a way for us to be right with him without compromising his justice. That's what he does, did, right? Accomplished when he laid our sins on his perfect son and poured out his justice and wrath against him instead of us and then calls upon us to put our faith and trust in that. And I think he sums it up great at the end of Romans 3, verse 23 through 26, when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who are the ones that have sinned and fall short? He's speaking specifically about those who are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24. And Christ Jesus is the one, verse 25, whom God put forward who he displayed as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood. He poured out his life to satisfy God's wrath that the wages of sin was death. And he put him forward not just to satisfy his wrath, but also to be received by us by faith and to show in those great events his righteousness. There's that word again. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's a great way of, of expanding on. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It puts God's righteousness on display that he could be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ. And that's, again, how we're justified by faith alone. And right after that, he says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This has always been the standard. As Paul goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That, that's, that's quoting Genesis 12. It goes all the way back to the beginning, this gospel of faith alone. That's not something that was created in the New Testament Salvation has always come to mankind by faith alone. It is and has always been the answer to how one is made right with God. You must believe God and his provision for the forgiveness of sin. And he will reckon that provision to you. He will credit it to your account as though it was your own. Well, what about works? There's got to be some works here. Where do we start doing the good things? Right? That's got to come in here somewhere. If we're going to be God's people, uh, that means we need to be good people at the very least. Where do the works 
start to come in? Well, it doesn't come in in any way, shape, or form, in any fashion when it comes to your salvation. Look at verse 4. Because to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if you work for it, then God owes it to you. That can't be the deal. But to the one who does not work for it, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, there's, there's the beautiful essence of the gospel, isn't it? What a wonderful thing, right? He, we're condemned, and we know we're sinful, and we're in need of a Savior, and we know over time it gets proven over and over and over again that we can't ever be perfect in the sight of God. That's the essence of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is a completely free salvation. It's offered only to those who believe, not to those who can earn it, who can work for it. And somewhere along the line, when you start talking about the gospel in this way, somewhere along the line, someone is almost always going to object. Now, wait a minute. Salvation can't be that free. What about... Mass murderers? What about pedophiles? What, what about people who steal the life savings of an elderly person? Are, are you saying those people can just say, God forgive me? And then he says yes? How many of us have had someone ask us a question like that when we're trying to share the glorious nature of the, the free gospel of grace? Somewhere along the line, someone asks that question. Now, I think those are, uh, those are kind of a setup, right? I, I would love to hear Jesus answer to that question because he was so good at answering questions that are really just a setup, right? And, and in reality, you think, well, some folks that are, are doing things like that are kind of given over to sin and they rarely repent and believe. But in principle, it's still true, isn't it? That if they repent and believe, God will forgive them because there, there is no limit to what God can and will forgive. And that forgiveness always comes freely to those who repent and believe. And, and that, that is the gospel. I mean, it, it has to be that way. And it's no more evident in, than it is in the amazing statement near the very end of this section, at the end of chapter 5, when Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased, or mega increased all the more. That's the beauty and the richness and the fullness of the gospel. The more man sins, the more they may be forgiven, and the more they are forgiven, the more God is able to put his grace on display, and no man, and no amount of sin, and no kind of sin can ever exhaust the grace of God. That is the gospel, friends, and it's a beautiful thing. And that is not only a beautiful thing, it's the introduction to Romans 6. <laughs> Thank you for enduring another long introduction. The amazing and abounding free grace of the gospel. And it's no wonder that Paul would foresee someone's objection to preaching and teaching this kind of message. It, it really is scandalous, isn't it? That God would forgive in such a way and so fully and so freely. And so the Apostle Paul foresees someone is going to object to this scandalous message. And so he asks the obvious question that anyone who had just heard this message would ask. 
in Romans 6, chapter 1. What shall we say then? And and that's Paul's way of saying, I know what you're going to ask next. I know what you're going to ask next. Should we just continue in sin that grace may increase? If there's more sin produces more forgiveness and grace, and more forgiveness and grace produces more glory for God, shall we just continue in sin that grace may increase? Should we continue in sin because we can't be perfect anyway? Another angle on the same question. And that, the gospel message as a whole, and then the answer to that question, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? That sets the context for the glorious truths of Romans chapter 6. And it sets the context in which Paul, in this passage, answers our question. And the, and the question we're going to talk about is this question, what is the believer's relationship to sin? And that question is important because of the things I mentioned earlier, how so very often we, we just subtly embrace this sort of defeated attitude about sin. Right? I'm just... I'm tired and I can't stop it. And the temptations keep coming. It feels compelling. And then, I mean, we might not be struggling with substance abuse types of addictions, but Hebrews talks about, you know, besetting sins, doesn't it? Those sins that just seem to plague us over and over and over. And, and if we probably all know what ours is. I know what mine is. The sins that, and temptations that I seem to, I'm still facing you know, however many years into my Christian life that it's been. Still, 34 years into a Christian life, there are things that plague me still, right? I know what it is, but I'm not defeated by it. And that's the beauty. What, what is the believer's relationship to sin? And then once we understand that better and better, I believe it empowers, it energizes us, it motivates us to fight sin. And so as we're thinking about this question theme of growing together how to help one another grow and change there can't really be a more important question than what is our relationship to sin how can I encourage my own heart how can I encourage the hearts of others to think biblically about that and to respond to it in a way that's not defeated but victorious so let's dig into these two chapters first uh, what, what we're going to see is that change for the Christian, spiritual growth for the Christian, it's not just possible, it's, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Because our union with Christ produces emancipation from sin, or freedom from sin. That, that really is the theme of Romans 6, that having been joined to Christ by faith, we have been freed from sin. That's the theme of Romans 6. And there's a few emphases as we're going to meander through this chapter that we need to consider. Uh, Paul emphasizes that there are certain things in, in this regard that we need to know. There are certain things that we need to know, that we need to understand. And then knowing these things, we need to consider or reckon is, is the word that he uses. Consider it to be so. Reckon it to be so. Embrace that that is the spiritual reality that is true of me as well. And not just believe that those things are true, but reckon it or live out the implications of it. Consider the implications of it. And then third, that having considered the implications of the things that we know, 
and believing that they are true, we are to present ourselves to God in light of those things, to take actions, to put one foot in front of the other and take those actions. So those are kind of the three emphases we're going we're gonna to look at. So first, there are some things that, that Paul tells us we must know about our relationship to sin and our freedom from it, actually, right? You, you see him using this word know or knowing all throughout here, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, again in verse 16, right? He's saying, do you not know, verse 3, or verse 6, knowing this, like you should know this, verse 6, verse 9, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, or do you not know, verse 16, you see him saying there's things that we need to know. What are the various things Paul is telling us that we need to know and remember and eventually apply, right? Well, again, in the context, remember, Paul's answering this question, should a believer continue in sin so that grace, grace might increase? And he responds to that question initially in verse 1 with a little flare, a little outrage in his voice. Uh, my translation says, uh, may it never be, in verse 2. Or some translations say, absolutely not. And it is literally the strongest way you can say no in the, the Greek language. Why, why should we absolutely not continue in sin so that grace might increase? Well, he says in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? I mean, here's one thing we need to know, that we need to grasp. If you remember nothing else, please remember this. As a result of your salvation, you are dead to sin. That's what Paul says here, that you are already dead to sin. How shall we who died to sin? That's us, believers. How shall we who died to sin still Live in it. He thinks it's an unthinkable thing for a Christian to just continue in unrestrained sin. It's an unthinkable thing. We're dead to sin. How could that possibly be the reality? This passage doesn't teach you that being dead to sin is a future reality. Paul, by saying, How shall we who died to sin, or what he says in uh, later. Uh, in uh, verse 7, that you've been freed from sin. He, he's not saying that uh, you're in the process of dying to sin. That someday you will be dead to sin. No, he says you have died to sin. You are freed from sin. And we died to sin, how then shall we still live in it? And the opening section of chapter 6 here is meant to help us understand this truth. But Paul just doesn't state the fact and leave us wondering how and why it is true. He, he gives us the theological and the, the doctrinal reasons why it's true. Really, he describes the spiritual realities that have taken place as a result of our salvation. And, and I think we could sum it up in this simple phrase, because of our union with Christ. We have died to sin and can't live in it any longer unrestrained because of our union with Christ. Verse 3, or do you not know? And again, here's one of the things he tells us we should know. Do you not know that all of us who have been 
baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. He's referring here in verse 3 to what our physical baptism symbolizes. Our union with Christ, our immersion into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because we have been joined and immersed into relationship with Christ, we have been joined and immersed into the death that he died, the death that he died to sin and for sin, and not only joined and immersed into the reality and benefits of his death, we have also been joined and immersed into the realities and the benefits of his resurrection. Verse 4. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, this death to sin, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. United, verse 5, in the likeness of his death, and certainly also united in the likeness of his resurrection. So he reminds us, as a Christian, in the mind and eye of God, and in, in truth, spiritually, the reality is, he sees us as having been crucified, died to sin, buried and resurrected again to walk in newness of life. That's what he has done and accomplished and has designed, not just in the future, but in the the here and now. And why does he expect that? Well, he says we should know that, that already. Why does God expect this newness of life? Well, that's another thing that we should know already. The way he goes on to address the reason we should be walking in newness of life, implies, Paul's implying, that this should be common knowledge. Look at verse 6. We should be walking in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that, and, and here's the phrase, that our body of sin might be done away with. That's my New American Standard translation. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died to sin is freed from sin. Again, there's this other knowing this. We should know this, is what he's suggesting. And the, and the question, I guess, for us is, do you know this? Do we know this? Have we thought about it deeply? Have we considered it the way Paul's going to encourage us to, to consider it? Is this a truth that you have learned and embraced that, that you're wanting to live by? that you are, you are dead to sin and alive to God. What an amazing reality. It should excite us. And when we, when we are staring sin in the face, I mean, you, it, it ought to make you go, hey, sin trying to stare me in the face, I am going to do the eye poke on you because I'm dead to you, right? I'm alive to God. That's what it should do. It should should fill us, energize us to fight against sin. Because, as he says, this body of sin, the thing that's plaguing us, the thing that is dragging that sin around, he describes there in verse 6, this body of sin has been done away with. This old self has been crucified. Who's the old self? Let's, Let's talk about that for just a little bit. The old self that Paul is talking about here is the 
the man or woman, the person that you were apart from Christ. That's the old part. This is not you anymore. It's the old you. The old self is the person we were when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. The old self is the person that we were when we were still in Adam, to use Romans 5 language, but now we are a new man in Christ. The old self that has been crucified is the person that we were when we were still taken captive to do the will of the devil. But Paul says that man has been crucified. He is dead. Again, he's not in the process of dying. The text tells us that he's also been buried in Christ. It it wouldn't be appropriate, even in a God-given metaphor, to bury someone who is in the process of dying. That makes the metaphor seem kind of awkward, right? No, no, dead and buried. That old man has been crucified, and he is... Not just mostly dead, right, as the princess bride says, but all dead, right? That, in order that, our body of sin might be done away with. Oh, so glad. The body of sin, right? The body of sin has been dealt the death blow itself, right? It has been, as the New American Standard says, done away with. The ESV says brought to nothing, what is this body of sin? Why The body of sin in Scripture is referred to a couple of different ways. The body of sin, uh, the body of this death, uh, later in chapter 7. I believe the word flesh, the flesh, is another way to refer to that. It is, it is the unredeemed part of us. It is the, the immaterial part of our being that wants us to live independent from God. It's, uh, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's like that voice in our head that's tempting us. But it is an aspect of our fallenness that is yet unredeemed. And somehow the flesh, and the reason it's called the body of sin or the body of this death, and actually the word flesh is just the Greek word for muscle. Uh, It's got spiritual implications as well, but it, it literally just means that. Just what you might think. Somehow our fallenness is rooted in our physical being. I do not know how. So there's mystery to some of this, right? I do not know how, but I know this. When I am absent from the body, I'm instantly present with the Lord. That means anything and everything that has to do with sin or fallenness, uh, spiritual brokenness is done away. It's gone. Gone forever, right? So somehow this body of sin, the flesh, it's, it's, it's an immaterial part of our being that's somehow rooted in our physical fallenness but it's not who we are. And I think we'll see that as we continue on into chapter 7. But here's what Paul says about this body of sin, this flesh, this sinful part of us, or this principle of sin that still uh, straps us to our fallenness. He says it's done away with, or ESV, brought to nothing. The, the word means to be rendered inoperative or to make idle or inactive. It's like uh, uh, the power gets cut is sort of the idea. It could be translated incapacitate or abolish or to be nullified by removing its, its power and control over us. So we, we need to understand that word because that is a, a word of victory. 
that is a word that says the sinful part of you has been stomped. It has been stomped and has no authority and no power in your life. It's just part of your human earthly existence, but it's already been defeated. One day at death it will be removed completely. Here's, here's another place where the word is used, and maybe it will help illustrate just how fully the abolishing of the power of sin over you has been defeated. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's teaching about the resurrection, he says, when the end comes, he delivers up the kingdom to God and the Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Christ will reign and put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's the same word. Abolishing all earthly rule and authority and abolishing death itself. Those rules and authority don't get to like squeak out and do what they want when Christ returns. Death itself can't do anything with the life-giving Messiah ruling the earth. Right? So that's the meaning of abolished. Our old man is dead. The body of sin is useless, powerless. We are freed from sin. Or back to our illustration, we're no longer slaves to sin. Before we were united to Christ, totally slaves to sin. But now in our union with Him, that slavery, that power, that authority that sin had over our lives is abolished. We don't have to sin anymore. That is a beautiful thing. I don't have to sin anymore. I want everyone to say that. I don't have to sin anymore. Let's say it again. I don't have to sin anymore. Now, I, I, could make, I could keep going if you get a little more excited or maybe a little more convinced. I'm not sure. It doesn't feel that way all the time, though, does it? It doesn't feel that way. We're told that the old man is dead. He, he's, he's not mincing any words. But then he says, okay, you are dead to sin. You are freed from sin. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's when he tells us, now consider it. Reckon it. And that's the, the second big thing here that he's, he's saying. We need to consider that these things are true. And you know what? Some days it's harder to convince ourselves than others, isn't it? That's the reality that we're living in. We're going to get to Romans 7. We're going to understand that better. But before we get there, what a glorious thing. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He, he is encouraging us, admonishing us, teaching us to take an extra step of confident belief, confident assurance that these things are true. And if it wasn't hard to do that, Paul wouldn't have to tell us to do it. right? And so he's saying, I want you to consciously consider it to be true. I want you to believe that it has been reckoned to your account. I want you to believe so surely that God has blessed you with that, that freedom and the riches of freedom from sin that you can write the check. That freedom is in your account. So, so write the check. That's, that's really, when he says reckon it to be true, he's saying... Truly, really, genuinely believe it and consciously act in light of it. 
And, and again, most of us have trouble concluding that based on our practical experience with sin, my, myself included. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I understand. But I'm, I'm here to preach the text, not tell you how I feel on Tuesday mornings after I fight with my wife, right? What does the text say? The text says I didn't have to be impatient with my wife. The text says I could have been loving and gentle and sacrificial. And if I wasn't, it's because I didn't reckon it to be true. I didn't consider myself dead to those things. Instead, I did what I did because I wanted what I wanted, right? And what I wanted in that moment was something that I wasn't getting from my wife, right? Whatever it might be. But that's not what the text says had to happen. That's why I like repeating, I don't have to sin anymore. When we sin, every time we sin, it is like, it is like you have lived in an apartment complex for 10 years and you have dutifully paid your rent every single month on time. And you've done that because, well, you didn't want to get a late notice, and it feels good to have your bills paid on time, and actually, you like the landlord, and you wanted to make him happy. And so you dutifully and fully paid your rent on time. And, frankly, the landlord could demand that you paid the rent on time, couldn't he? If you hadn't paid the rent, he would have put a notice on your door that you got three days to pay or quit. I used to manage apartments. I used to put those notices on people's doors. you got three days to pay the rent or get out. Not a happy time, right? When you are saved, it is though God rescues you from ever having to pay rent again. And he gives you your own prepaid mansion over here where you live. But the landlord, he likes the cash flow. And so he keeps sending you bills. He keeps sending you a bill every month that says, please pay your rent. Does he have the authority to tell you to pay your rent? No. Does he have authority to collect it? No. Is anything going to happen to you if you don't pay the rent? No. When we sin, it's like continuing to pay the rent. Even though we don't owe it. it has no, he has no authority over us. That's the sad reality of sin, that even though we're no longer under that authority, even though we're no longer obligated to obey it, it's such a familiar voice. And it's, it's something that we've grown so accustomed to. And in some ways, we enjoyed paying the rent on time, right? And being satisfied with not getting notices, etc., etc. And when we think about the application of it in the realm of sin, it's it's not just that it was nice not to pay our bills. We probably got some pleasure or some comfort or some satisfaction out of the sins that we've committed. And so when we feel those temptations, it's, it's a lot more powerful, actually, than a, a landlord asking for rent, right? It's, it's an internal principle of sin. And it's telling us, you're going to miss out on this or you're going to suffer from that or you're not going to experience this other thing. And it's been telling us that for so long that when it continues to tell us that, after it has no authority to say it or demand it, 
it still feels kind of appealing, doesn't it? And boy, it gets even more complicated when the sins that, that our flesh has drawn us into include aspects that relate to our physical fallenness, like addictions, right? That, that makes it even more complicated. It's not just a thought process at that point. It becomes a physical yearning, even, right? makes it very, very complicated. And yet, no authority. It has no authority to say it, demand it, tease it out of you. The old man, this body of sin, the flesh, man, it's hard because it's actually in us, right? And it appeals to us. It appeals to our tastes. It appeals to our desires. It appeals to those old habits of sin, some of them even having physical yearnings, it calls out to us. Yet, the, here's what the scripture does here in Romans 6 and Romans 7. It makes a clear distinction between the real you, the real you who has been born again, recreated in Christ, joined to Christ, your, your true self today, who's under no obligation to the flesh. It makes a distinction between you and the body of sin, the old man. Again, it's, it's, it's hard for us to grasp that, I think, because it, it feels like us, right? Why is it so un, hard to, to understand and comprehend that our real self, our recreated self, our born-again self, has this new nature? It has been given the mind of Christ. You are participating in the divine nature. You now have a completely new disposition in regard to sin. Man, on Tuesday morning, it's hard to feel that way, isn't it? Now, I think it could be hard to, to feel that way because you've just never been shown that this is what the Bible teaches. I think you guys have been through Romans, so I suspect you've heard some of this. I'm just repackaging it a little bit, I think. It might be hard to grasp, you know, honestly, because the devil doesn't want you to believe it, does he? He doesn't want you to believe you're freed from sin. And what does he do? the accuser of the brethren. He tells you over and over that you're not freed from sin, doesn't he? Even though it's, it's a bald-faced lie. You are freed from sin. If the devil tells you you're not, give him one of those, right? I mean, not literally, but, well, I mean, I suppose if he's standing there, go ahead, but that's for the Q&A. You might find it difficult to grasp you're dead to sin and are completely alive to God because you can't verify it, right? It's just, you can't physically verify that you have spiritually died, been buried, and risen again. You can't physically verify it. Though I hope, I hope if you've been born again and those realities are true of you, that the Spirit is testifying with your spirit that you're children of God, that there is an experience of life, an experience of new desires, Right? I, I hope you are experiencing that, but we still we can't we can't verify it. But I I, I think ultimately the, the, the obvious reason why it sometimes is hard to believe is just because we battle with sin so much. And it just doesn't it hurts. It doesn't feel every day like I have a totally new disposition toward God and totally new hatred for sin and that sin's control and power and authority it's been broken. Right? Because I'm I'm tempted. And I give in, right? So that's why, that's why Paul says, don't just know it, consider it, reckon it to be true. 
right? Put it in your account and spend the money. That's really what he's saying. Like, spend it. Uh, apply it to your temptations. Here's what I find. When I'm dealing with people, especially people who are struggling with addictions and whatnot, um, they feel so defeated. I love teaching Romans 6 to people who are, who are struggling with addiction. I love it. Because they feel so defeated. And Romans 6 has so much victory. David Needham says about these truths, about this passage essentially, what could be more frustrating than being a Christian who thinks himself primarily a self-centered sinner, yet whose purpose in life is to produce God-centered holiness? And flip that upside down. You are primarily a God-centered holy person, a saint. That is what you are primarily and truly and fully born again, new man. John MacArthur says this, until a believer accepts the truth, and that, that's accepting is the re- reckoning, considering it, not just, not just reading the words and saying, yeah, I'm freed from sin, but believing it. Until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin over his life, He can't live victoriously because in his innermost being, he doesn't think it's possible. How many of us have felt that way? I don't think it's possible. Romans 6 says, consider it absolutely possible, even inevitable, if you yield yourself to God. We can overcome We can endure. We can resist every temptation that sin, the devil, our bodies can throw at us because we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul just simply tells us, know it and reckon it, consider it to be true that you are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11. Now, he doesn't just command us to believe it, He says there's some implications. If this is true, if this is really true, you have this power, then the third thing you need to do is present yourself. In other words, act in light of it. And that begins in verse 12, where he says, therefore, here's the implication, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He's, uh, well, I want to point out a couple things about that statement, right? First, he's saying we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. So he wouldn't be exhorting us along those lines if it were impossible for sin to exercise some kind of rule in our mortal body, right? Not in our heart of hearts, not in our redeemed self, but through the means of our fallen humanness, the flesh and our body, sin does grab us sometimes. And we all know that reality. In other words, it is possible for Christians to know for a time the experience of sin controlling us. If that becomes your character... If that becomes your habitual pursuit, your unrepentant pursuit, your unhindered practice, 
then it, it's probably betraying that your faith is ingenuine, that your profession of faith is, is not real. So being engaged in this fight that Paul is calling us to is absolutely vital. To be fighting for the end of not letting sin reign is the sign of genuine faith and of new life in Christ. Not the perfection of our lives, but the direction of our lives, right? Fighting sin. But secondly, there's a nuance here of what Paul says that is actually very important. Notice that he does not say, do not let sin reign in you. He he couldn't say that if everything else that he's just said is true. It would be contrary to everything else he's been saying. He's just been telling us that you are dead to sin. The real you, the person you are in your heart of hearts, the person you are as a product of being born again, that person is real and legit, and it's fighting the battle. It's a subtle distinction, but it's one that's very important. If and when sin dominates us as Christians, it doesn't dominate our person completely. It just gets a hold of our mortal bodies, almost like it's living through our fallen mortal bodies. And that's why he uses that phrase, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. That's not the real you. That's the fallen part of you. But the real you is totally, completely born again. Again, it's a subtle distinction. But the real you, Christian, I hope this resonates with you. The real you loves righteousness. The real you hates sin. Doesn't it? When you sin, it it grieves your heart, right? You want to poke sin in the eye, and you, you just don't know how to do it some days. Listen to how Paul goes on, and he stays very consistent on this point. Romans 7, now we're jumping into Romans 7, hang on. Romans 7, verse 17, he says, So now, he's talking about his struggle with sin, the same one that you and I experienced. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. That body of sin which has no power still tells us to pay the bill. But that's not the real Paul, he says. Not me doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, verse 20, if I, he says, verse, chapter 7, verse 20, if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Or verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body. Again, see how he's referring to the members of his body, the fallen part of him, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He repeatedly makes reference to the members of his body or his flesh or the body of sin or sin which dwells in him. But at the same time, when he refers to himself and to other Christians, it's redeemed, it's alive, it hates sin, it doesn't want sin, it wants righteousness. Right? So, verse 15, I'm doing the very thing I hate, he says. Chapter 7, verse 15. Verse 18, nothing good in my flesh dwells, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You, you see what he's doing? He's saying there's, a, there's the real me, the born again me, the freed from sin me, and then there's the 
product of this messy fallenness that still exists. That's the battle that we're in. That's what we're fighting. And it's why Paul can say in Romans 7 verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. The real me loves God and loves his word. I hate the sin. There's such a huge difference between battling sin and hating sin and constantly and willingly and unrepentantly yielding to sin, right? Paul's saying, present yourselves. It's it's a vital part of the whole package that you are presenting yourselves to the realities that are true in you because of your redemption. And that presenting yourselves, you know what it looks a lot like? Training in righteousness. That we talked about last night. You know what presenting yourselves as servants of God and of righteousness looks like? It looks like put on the new man. Put on a new manner of life. That's what it looks like. Because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. And that's not a passive endeavor, right? That's not a passive endeavor. Well, I have kind of jumped all the way into Romans 7, and I've already been talking about this, right? Your sin doesn't change who you are. Your sin doesn't change who you are. Again, who you are as a Christian is a redeemed, born-again, freed-from-sin person. That's who you are. But we do experience sin. Now, Paul describes, and I want to hit one other thing in in the five minutes that we have here. One other thing. This dynamic is difficult to overcome, in part because of what Paul describes in verse, let's go back to verse 22 of Romans 7, where he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He's saying the real me loves God, loves his law, longs for righteousness. But, verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice again, there's a different law and where it's in the members of his body, it's, it's connected to my fallenness. And it's waging war against the law of my mind. The, the born-again believer who has the mind of Christ and hates sin and loves righteousness. That, that's your real mind. That's what you truly think as a believer. It's waging war against the law of my mind. And that's where this sin comes from. I want to talk about this idea of law. And, and I'm, not, I'm not following those two points in the outline if, if you're following. I just want you to listen to me talk about this idea of law. This word, it might even be translated principle in the ESV, but it's the word law, namas, in, in the Greek. Uh, and a law is something that compels us to obey. That's what a law is. So if you move into that apartment, you have to pay the rent. That's the law. That's the rules, right? Laws compel us to obey. So if we uh, pull out of the church parking lot 
right? And we're like, oh, man, I want to get to bricks before they close. Right? Off you go. And you see a cop pull up to the intersection. What do you do? You all slow down, right? You could be going 50. You could be going 20. And I'll bet you still hit the brakes, don't you? I do. Because the law compels me to obey. That's what it does. Uh, I don't want to get punished. So I hit the brakes. So when Paul uses that word, I have a law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. Isn't that what we experience sometimes in temptation? It's like seeing the cop car and I have to stop. It's telling me what I have to do. That cop, without saying a word, is telling me what I have to do. Sin is a law waging war in my members telling me what I have to do. Do we have to do it? No. I don't have to sin anymore, right? And yet we listen, right? That's the dynamic that Paul's describing. And this is the dynamic we experience, I think, as Christians where this law of sin is waging war in our members. He's like, don't you remember what good friends we were, you and I? That's what sin is telling us. Don't you remember all the pleasure that I brought you? Don't you remember all the the comfort that you experienced because you gave in to me? Don't you remember the way you were able to control your circumstances by giving in to your pride, right? Or your harsh words, right? It's a law and it's telling us we got to do this to get what I want. We got to do this, right? Wait, I don't want that, but it's telling me I do, right? That's what habits feel like. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word habits, and I've said numerous times. Let's use Bible words. That's what the old man that has no power is telling you. That's what your old manner of life has trained you to do and to want. So consider the words of of 2 Peter 2, 14, right? Because sin becomes easy because we have given into it over and over and over again. And it becomes natural because of those habits or manner of life. 2 Peter 2.14, talking about false prophets, but he says, Peter says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Right? We can train ourselves to sin. We can train ourselves to want sin, to enjoy it. Uh, We've trained ourselves to believe that those are the things that we need to be happy or to experience pleasure, to have satisfaction or be in control, right? We train our hearts to think the wrong ways. When God is calling us to live by faith in the Son of God, right? Live believing and embracing and trusting in the commands and the character and the promises of God. That's the huge distinction. Right? So that's how we overcome sin is actually by retraining ourselves. That's the beauty of put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, have a completely different perspective on you, your life and your circumstances, your heart, and put on a new manner of life, the new man, which is being renewed according to the image of Christ. It's an ongoing thing. That's, 
That's what Romans 6 says is absolutely possible. It's what Romans 6 or 7 tells us is going to be difficult in this age. But it's still absolutely possible. So that's the theological grounding. And again, if you just take one thing away from this, man, it's that sin has been stomped and grounded to the ground and I don't have to sin anymore. I do because my heart's been trained by that flesh, that moral body, and so I still do. But I can overcome the effects of that by God's grace. Tomorrow night, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how do I overcome that by God's grace? What does it look like? Not, not what is it, not just some truths about it, but what does it actually look like? Why do I want to do it and how do I pursue it? We're going to talk about that, and I hope it'll be profoundly practical so that we can live the rest of our Christian lives overcoming sin and growing together and encouraging one another to overcome sin in all of its, all of its forms. Let's pray. God, thank you for these great and precious promises uh, by which we can become partakers of the divine nature. God, we want to... We want to believe and embrace these glorious realities of our freedom from sin that you have delivered us, that you have rendered powerless. Uh, the, the unredeemed part of us, our flesh, our body of sin has been nullified. God, help us to consider that to be profoundly true. Help that to motivate us to present ourselves to you and to really even be motivated to grow in our understanding of what it looks like on a day-to-day basis, to be presenting ourselves to you in every way. You are such a kind Savior. God, help us to live our lives under you, our benevolent Lord, as you've called us to, and to, to walk in this righteousness that you have wrought and declared to be true. Let us walk in the, the way that you uh, said is, is true of us. And God, thank you for your grace and your power and the promise of accomplishing it in us for your glory and by your grace. Amen. Giddy up. Oh, oh wow. That was good. Giddy up. All right. Uh, as with last night, feel free to continue to grab snacks, but if you have what you need, let's, uh, let's move back to our seats. And we'll begin a 10-minute discussion here to conclude our night. All right, so in a lack of explicit questions texted in, we wanted to use this time to kind of throw a few slow balls over the plate for Brian to swing at, uh, <laughs> give him some space to draw out some implications or, or extra things to think about, uh, specifically on this topic tonight. So the, the first question um, is kind of just how, how do people... How do we uh, diminish this victory in our lives? Like, how do we kind of subtly deny it? Right. So, uh, in this pursuit of, of knowing that these truths are, are absolute and considering and reckoning them and presenting ourselves to have that energy and motivation to, to really just fight against sin and have victory, 
uh, one way I've seen people diminish the importance of that is by thinking, you know, I, I, uh, I have a lot of thing, good things going for me. I read my Bible and pray every day. I go to church. I do family devotions at night. So basically I'm doing pretty good. I just have this one or two really serious problems. Um, and so they, they kind of just minimized the seriousness of their sin by sort of elevating uh, the, the goodness of some of the other things that they do. So I've, I've seen that to the extent of like, I do all these things, but, um, but he's getting drunk every night and, and yelling and isolating from his family. And then when he does emerge from the basement, he's yelling at everyone, you know. So he was a horrible, uh, horrible husband and father, but was doing all these things. So just not really feeling like he could have victory over that sin and wasn't even trying in that regard, right? And then, uh, what was the second one I mentioned to you? Good memory over here. The besetting sin. Well, another one is um, not thinking about, um, not putting everything in this category of fighting against sin that should be in that category is another way that we can not take these truths seriously enough. Uh, For instance, thinking that the things I struggle with are just personality quirks um, rather than character deficiencies, right? Well, that's just the way I am. Um, isn't really... No, we, I, I sometimes will say to people, look, if that's your personality, then God wants to change your personality um, because it's, it's not godly. So um, I don't think... I mean, I'm, I say that to point out it's, that's not actually a personality quirk. That's a character flaw. Um, they're very similar on the outside, but yeah. Some somebody says, "Well, I'm just a bold person," and really, they just are kind of rude. Or, "I'm just a, a chill person," but really, they're kind of lazy. You know, yeah, putting yeah. biblical words to it. Or, "I'm quiet and an introvert," but they, you know, they don't speak up when they should speak up. And it, there's all kinds of manifestations of that. Yeah. That's two ways. I had a third way. Maybe it will come to me. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, and it, it does rest in saying, well, the only thing Paul describes in Romans 7 is a battle that's going on in the members of his body. He, sometimes we can blame people, some people will blame circumstances, right? Sometimes it's not even people. Um, and so that's another thing that I'll hear that's not really owning the battle and, and thinking about it in a way that motivates you to fight the battle is thinking that, my, my struggles are because of other people in my life or because of circumstances in my life and not recognizing that those things are just the heat that 
uh, that God brings into your life. And that heat is there to, to, to expose what's in your heart. And she's, she's right. We've trained our hearts to think a certain way about why we do or say things. Um, but that's just self-justification. It's not, it's not what Paul's describing. So, yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow night. There's ways to... So, yeah, Paul talks about re- being renewed in the spirit of your mind and putting on the new man. And, and we'll talk tomorrow night about practical ways that we can renew our mind because we actually if, have to train ourselves to think differently about certain things or people or circumstances that we have thought one way about for a long, long time. Right? Sometimes we've been thinking that way our whole lives. And we might need to think completely different about it. How do I train my mind to think that? And it's really practical. We, I mean, we have people make, well, I'm, spoiler alert. Uh, I mean, we have people make stop think cards. When I catch myself thinking this, I am going to stop. And instead, I'm going to think that. And the thing that they need to think is the truth. Whatever it is. And there's always a biblical truth. Whether that truth is a, a, a principle or an attribute of God or a promise of God or whatever. You know, I'm going to train my mind that when I think the wrong thought or make, make excuses, I'm going to train my mind to think something different. And I'm going to pursue that prayerfully. And, and we can train our minds to think differently about things. So I was, I was uh, hanging out with somebody not too long ago who I would say is somewhat pessimistic. We'll put it that way. And I asked him a question about something that I knew he kind of struggled with. He's a good friend. How's it going with this? And he gave me this glowing answer. I mean, it was such a glowing answer that there was a part of me that was like, he's not telling the truth. Like, that's kind of how it made me feel, but and I almost said, hmm, is it really as good as you say? Um, but then I thought, you know, maybe he's intentionally focusing on the, the right things and the good things and the blessings that God is producing in that circumstance so that he doesn't train his mind to dwell on the negative things that he might naturally, sinfully dwell on so that he's being giving glory to God and not being that sinful pessimist. And so I, I consciously made a decision not to, not to call him out on it. Um, and, and over time, if I think he's just faking it, I, I will. But uh, in that situation, I'm like, no, I'm going to let him train his mind that way. That's what he's doing. I don't, I don't want to interrupt it. So we can, we can all do that. We can train our minds. It, and again, it's not a spiritual Jedi mind trick. I'm, that's not what I'm advocating. It's... it's Truly and genuinely going to the scriptures and, and embracing God's perspective instead of a, a sinful, selfish, or, or fraud perspective on circumstances of life. Great. Thank you.